just a heads up to our listeners. Make sure to tune in next week. We've got something really special coming. I will be dropping an exclusive coupon that'll grant a select number of listeners a free subscription to War on the Rocks. That's right. Free subscription to War on the Rocks. It's an opportunity you won't want to miss, so make sure to tune in next week to get that code. For folks who don't know, 1959, launch a rocket that would take photos of the Soviet Union, so before Apollo and everything like that, uh, and then it would parachute a film canister that would be picked up by a helicopter or plane before it landed in the ocean. The first 13 rockets blew up. It wasn't until rocket attempt number 21 they finally succeeded. And of course, it helped win the Cold War, but it was later declassified in the mid-90s, bought by a company called Keyhole that was bought by Google to become the basis of Google Earth. So I often say, you know, government is innovative, they just don't monetize it, they leave it to others. This is All Quiet on the Second Front, a podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Join me, Tyler Sweat, and my Second Front comrades as we dismantle the mundane, cut through the bureaucratic BS to demystify the world of defense tech. But be warned, this is not a typical government podcast. Ready to get weird? This is a Soul Fire production. All right, what's up, everybody? It's that time again. We're going to do a little bit of a uh, season two recap, kind of a what, what's the way ahead here for 2024. You know, those of you that are sort of following the company know we've got some exciting events planned, both uh, South by Southwest, where we've got uh, Glitter and Rage, the realities of defense innovation. And then, you know, a couple months later for Offset Symposium, which will focus on software-defined statecraft and the the impact that software is having sort of not just on warfare or, or geopolitics or society, but sort of the confluence of all of them. Um, so I want to go through kind of some themes emerged, and I would love to tell you that these themes were intentional as we did them uh, in season two. But we went out, tried to find stories and voices that should be heard and that should be told, and then allowed sort of a a natural sort of evolution into some groupings. So, uh, you know, we'll start with kind of what's the current state of defense tech. And I think the the best place to start there is the first episode with Mike Pansky, where we really just focused on, on removing sort of bullshit and cliche and really getting an idea around, you know, what is the status quo? What does that look like? And how should we be thinking about, you know, the resiliency or the lack thereof in supply chains? So if you haven't seen it, go back, check out the need for shifts in defense tech with Mike Pansky. You know, we come from sort of the the reality and and challenging conventional norms. I think the the next place you you clearly go is the conversation with Brian Kroger, CEO of Rise Eight. Talk about everything from the authority to operate process and software accreditation to agile, sort of people centric approaches, and then really kind of popping the hood on on software factories and and what they are, what they aren't. And really trying to ring the bell and rally around, you know, reimagining or or rethinking how we approach technology and government. We then go from there into what does it mean to to grow a company in the federal market? Um, You think about everything from procurement to security. I think the the place everybody thinks about going is Decode with Megan Metzger. So we sort of talk through 
not just the realities of, of tech procurement, but also really understanding what are some of the policy limitations? How can leadership maybe bring some oil to the bureaucratic process? And then what is Decode and how does that sort of fit in? And how does Decode really, really help get better tech into the sectors that need it? Most leaders in the government and in the DOD did not come up through the ranks thinking they're going to manage major IT programs. Everything is a major IT program now. And if we want to start having more future-focused systems and capabilities, they have to understand enough to know that the way we need to manage and lead has drastically changed. You don't need to be a data science expert, right? There are amazing courses on data science for leaders that are out in the private sector. And I know groups like the army tap into that where decode picks up is then the Pentagon happens. So you learn this great stuff and then you walk back into the building and you are just, I don't know how to apply this to a bureaucracy. So for a leader, the questions that you're going to ask of your acquisition team, your finance team, your legal team, your program folks, your IT folks is going to look a little different if you want the culture to change and if you want to actually push the envelope. And then we pivot from there, go to the question sort of like, are we winning? And, you know, we had a, a good guest host here at Enrique, so I gave him sort of a B, B plus. But I think it was an interesting conversation with Marina Nets. Marina gets into the real world strategies for how to make government work more efficient. And I know that sounds maybe, maybe counterintuitive, but I don't know if there's anybody better positioned to opine on this than Marina a whole bunch around process, but I think really importantly around the mapping and an alignment of incentives and how to use that to, to drive behavior. So definitely go check that episode out if you haven't. What is your approach to handling this massive beast in government? Oh boy, have my views changed. When I joined the federal government, I believed that it was impossible to make any change there. And I went to kind of prove that to myself. I am a lifelong libertarian. And I was like, this place is so broken. You're not gonna be able to change anything. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna prove that to myself. I'm so right. I was so wrong. And once you make a change in a bureaucracy, that's pretty addicting. Bureaucracies change all the time. People's position descriptions change, their pay scales change. If you think about it, there's a lot that bureaucracies change all the time. And to your point, a lot of the book and a lot of what I've seen work is when people use the natural rhythms of the bureaucracy to make the change. Where people go wrong is they come in and they don't learn how the bureaucracy works and they end up slamming their head against a diamond wall. You know, as we move on from the realities of, of sort of defense innovation or defense tech, we, we then arrive at this next theme on kind of the, the intersection of public and private sectors and sort of what that means. Was very fortunate to have Ian from Illyria. I think that's a it's limiting to just call him Ian from Illyria because he's had an unbelievable career. We get to go through some of that career with him in this conversation. We get to talk about aside or or maybe beneath all of the the glossy technology and marketing buzz. Like this is still about the people. Um, we had a great conversation about how you use people to bridge some of that public-private divide and is things like skill bridge and transition and what that looks like. And then how, how, do we, how do we kind of meld the private sector into government frameworks? 
so that the, the capabilities can meet the warfighters or their consumers where they are. You may be a senior leader, but then you come into a startup level. There's no one for me to lead. My job is to do whatever the company needs. And this is where I think the special operations world is very similar. You have the thing that you're better at than everybody else. I'm not a radio operator. I'm an Intel guy. But the mission at the time needed radio operations to work. I'm not as good as the people who know how to do it, but I can help. And that mentality that allows you to quickly switch from one job to another, where no job is beneath you and no job is really above your ability. You just need time to learn it. I think really translates well to the startup world because coming in, we brought a lot of engineers over from Google, but many of the team finds themselves for an hour doing marketing and then you're doing program management and then you're doing project management. And then by the way, you have to switch into a sales mode and you have to do this all the time. You can't say, well, I'm not a sales guy because the lifeblood of the company is the revenue. If you can't bring in revenue, you don't have a job tomorrow. And so everybody's a sales guy. Now, at some point we will grow large enough and have this massive sales team and sales processes. But until that happens, everybody does everything. You know, you go from from sort of Ian and the, the people-centric. And then, you know, we immediately sort of took a look at, hey, what does bridging tech and government through community look like? And who else do you go ask for that? I mean, you bring Josh Marcuse. Josh requires no introduction. Josh has had an unbelievable career sitting in large CSPs at Google now to being in the Defense Innovation Board and sort of in on policy, Josh brings an ability and a, and a perspective on innovation ecosystems that I think provides a bunch of context on some of the current initiatives that are taking place in the department and is absolutely a, uh, a must listen to. The really talented engineers that I have worked with in government never left over a paycheck. They all left because they felt their talents were being wasted. They felt they were being led and managed by people that didn't understand the technology and the mission and the change they were seeking. And they felt that they didn't have an opportunity to use their gifts. And they left frustrated, not because they were excited to make more money. They were left frustrated because couldn't do what they, they couldn't do, do what yeah. they wanted to do, right? They had a gift they wanted yep. to give. They had a purpose they wanted to fulfill. They wanted to serve. And eventually they just got so frustrated that they realized I have to leave government to serve government and I'm going to have a bigger impact in the private sector and the public sector. And they left for those reasons. And then coming out from you know, the people and the community into a, into a broader sort of, how do you harness that type of philosophical approach into a go-to-market? Uh, and then we bring Nick Miller in. Nick from AWS runs a bunch of uh, AWS Marketplace. And then you sits at that intersection of government procurement and commercial innovation. And while that may sound like a fun place to sit, I think you know, those who are familiar with the realities of both of those recognize that that's a, a relatively friction-laden uh, position. And then what it's given, though, is Nick an ability to, to understand sort of mission-driven cultures, understand barriers and how to remove them, and really understand sort of the power of the community. So we were super fortunate to get both Josh and Nick on this season and, uh, and have a Google and an AWS perspective. So... Please go check those out. So, you know, we talked public sector, private sector, sort of bridging the divide, right? We talked the realities in defense tech. You start to see these themes pop up. And then we sort of pivot into, and I know it's a buzzword, and I know it's a little bit overused, but innovation and technology and defense, right? How are we bringing 
new capabilities for existing problems, existing capabilities for new problems? How are we thinking about, you know, flattening the the kill chain, so to speak? You know, we were able to have my buddy <laughs> Ahmed on and his ability to talk, not just, hey, how do we think about transitioning sort of research and development? How do we think about pushing the envelope on what requirements are? How do we bring agility and maybe a little bit more ap- uh, adaptability into the ecosystem? Abed has been, I think, one of the best at not just talking about it, but getting out there and doing it. And it's definitely one of those episodes. Take a listen to those of you that are in BD or you know some type of sales channel, 10 of 10 would recommend. And then you go from Ahmed to uh, an international episode and, you know, Rob Bassett-Cross, Adarga AI. One, sort of the ability to talk about Vantage, you know, what Adarga is doing, which is awesome. And I think breaking down a bunch of barriers around AUKUS, which need to be broken down. But even a layer sort of below just AUKUS and, you know, trilateral engagement and things like that is ways to break down sort of interdepartmental barriers and increase that teamwork to hopefully help scale or, you know, streamline rapid technology adoption. This is never a technology problem. A lot of what we we talk about from the sort of up and coming emerging tech industry, the problems we're encountering in defense and national security are, are what we would call solved problems. We recognize them as challenges that exist elsewhere. Maybe the outcomes aren't as poignant as defense mission sets, but they they resemble solved problems. And so this to me, therefore, is ends up being an understanding education and cultural challenge. The demand signal from my perspective, both in the UK and the US, is clear from our senior commanders. From the political top all the way through to those very senior stars, the adoption demand signal is absolutely there. What you're then getting into is the kind of bureaucracy of the system that then sort of fights itself. It's not that anyone in the system wants to see the downfall of the system. They all want to see success. They're just handcuffed with with un- lack of understanding, perhaps a bit of a fear that they don't understand it, but then the processes don't help them to adopt. Then we went inside the fence, you know, went to, went to the next episode, the next sort of theme is you know, cybersecurity and risk management, which again, you know, the surface might not be the sexiest thing in the world. I clearly find it super interesting and we at Second Front do. So as a byproduct, uh, we're going to continue to bring it. I think it is one of those areas that is oft talked about as annoying sort of policy or compliance. And then when something happens, it becomes the most important thing in the world. And many organizations fail to invest in their respective sort of calm periods in cybersecurity and risk management. And I think Donnie, VP of security at Second Front, so, you know, self-service or self, uh, self-serving, I think he's one of the best in the game, comes in and starts to talk about approaches to, to evolving sort of threats, how to think about risk, how to think about not just risk in terms of like a, you know, a sense, assess, mitigate, but how are we communicating that to to non-technical or non-security personnel? Because a, a security team that's able to spot, assess, if they're not able to communicate that up and out either to a functional leader or board or, or some type of governance framework, then, uh, then they're going to run into an issue from a resourcing standpoint. So it's a great episode for that one. 
because it's sometimes difficult to conceptually wrap your head around security. We often talk about a castle moat structure. There's my moat, there's my firewall, there's my door, it's my authentication. And you got to get past that two-dimensional perspective of that and think more of a defense in depth. When you're setting up in a military defense, you can put an obstacle. That obstacle is not observed. It's not an obstacle, right? So are you monitoring or alerting on the things you're sitting out there? Are you setting something out that's two clicks in advance to slow down and alert the attacker? He hits a strip flare, which allows you to see him before he gets in there. And then let's just say, worst case scenario, plan for him to be inside your network. And then think about what are the things you're doing inside the network, whether you're you're setting up like canaries or honey pots to kind of trick him or like implementing an actual fully zero trust thing where someone has to re-authenticate and you're checking him on everything. So the implementation is not, hey, he's inside the walls now. He can have access to everything. Like, no, he's inside the walls. Every other door in the castle is locked. And every door in the castle is a different key. You know, next one we went to on there, it was brought the guys from Beast Code in. So we had Wargo and then Matt Zimmerman talking everything from data interoperability and digital twins and, you know, what's the role of data ownership, uh, which I think is a huge, huge topic du jour right now within the department is, you know, as we look, we sort of the royal we, um, look to bring more players and more entrants into, you know, I think what Congress refers to as the national security innovation base. How are we, again, sort of, what are we thinking about intellectual property, thinking about data ownership, thinking about, you know, design patterns that we're going to ask for confirmation to? I think there's there's myriad sort of approaches to that right now, which causes a ton of confusion and complexity. And I think the fellows from, uh, from Beast Code do an outstanding job talking about that. And then, you know, continuing sort of on the, the risk theme, we start talking about like kind of trends in, in crisis and risk um, with Roderick and Mike uh, from Concentric. And I think this was a a really interesting conversation around public safety and how that's sort of cyber, a little bit of privacy in there and, and really sort of understanding how that all relates down and in from like a US public safety standpoint, but then up and out from a broader geopolitical standpoint. And I think it was a really interesting thread around trust and sort of what that means. And those of you that have known me or listened to me know that I think uh, most things we're doing are are rooted in trust. And I think we don't always uh, always focus on that. So it was a fantastic conversation for me to use a little bit of my own confirmation bias and say, see, I'm right. And then coming off of that, sort of the last on the cybersecurity kind of risk management was the one and only Chris Hughes, right? And I think Chris is one of those few people who can really take a whole bunch of complex, verbose, maybe uh, oddly articulated policy and communicate that really succinctly, just in a way that is consumable by practitioners and non-practitioners alike. So one, we took advantage of Chris's intellect and ability to do that, which was tremendous able to talk a little bit about uh, his new book, Software Transparency, which we've got links for in the show notes there. And then, you know, we're able to delve a little bit into like the ethics and societal responsibilities and really just like kind of click into the digital frontier. Absolutely one of my favorite episodes. I think 
I learn about a hundred times more than everybody else in all of these episodes because everyone's so freaking smart. Chris's ability to take that complex stuff and really break it down to like a seventh grade level is just amazing. So sort of turning the corner into, into the next theme was more around cultural change. So brought in Nick Sinai, you know, Marina's co-author for, for Hacking Bureaucracy. Nick's had the ability to sort of work in the White House, work at Insight, teach at Harvard, and really just fusing all of that experience down into, all right, cool. Like, what's the actual opportunity for culture change in this broader community? And what role, if any, can private capital play in that? And are we sort of tempering expectations or managing expectations the right way? Or are we setting ourselves up for a, for a potential problem? So pivoting from sort of the, the role of VCs and, and culture change into, into a little bit more, you know, the procurement side of the house and really thinking about, about defense acquisition and the value of data versus, you know, the way we've always done it in status quo. I don't think there was anybody better to have that conversation than Tara from Gavini. One of the sharpest, if not the best in the game on this. Really talk about sort of, you know, a paradigm shift in procurement, you know, a, a acceptance and maybe a recognition of the power, the data and the value that data can bring to the broader procurement and, you know, defense acquisition space. And then really, really clicked into the behavioral challenges, the behavioral changes needed. But uh, I think a real thought-provoking look at, at defense acquisition. And then, you know, again, so we start with Nick kind of talking about culture change, role of the VC, right? We had Tara talking about procurement side of the house and then sort of thinking about, you know, that dual use side of the house with, with Ryan Lewis. Ryan's, Ryan's ability to distill down technical trends and, and sort of break them down into, you know, cyclical patterns and I think opened up like a real conversation around, hey, all right, like what does this mean? And how, what is the new, I guess I should say, what is the new, uh, the newfound interest from private capital and defense mean? What is what is a, a fair expectation for time horizon and staying power and sort of how do we think about, about really harnessing that? Because I think there's, there's concern that, you know, maybe a, the floor sort of falls out a little bit or, you know, a bunch of capital allocators kind of pivot to the next thing. And what does that mean? Ryan just did an, an unreal job sort of talking about the historical nature of some of these patterns and cycles. And then that leads right into the next conversation with digging into M&A with, uh, with Arthur, right? And you've got, you get the ability to, to take a look at not just, you know, M&A, mergers and acquisitions from a sort of VC side of the house, but really thinking through you know, what opportunities are going to be out there and understanding sort of some of those barriers with financial policy knowledge, but really talking about what is success in M&A? And I think that is an important aspect because many folks, you know, acquirers and acquirees, I think, 
sometimes struggle to get past the deal and into the integration where it becomes a profoundly human challenge and less of a financial optimization challenge. And Arthur just does a friggin' unreal job at that. If you are really digging down into basis points of shares here or there, you're probably not doing yep. it for the right reasons. That's right. And because you are going to run into this integration process and the blocking and tackling, which you are doing shoulder to shoulder with your new team. And if you've chosen wisely, both on the buy and sell side, then that is going to help ensure success. Got to get that culture sealed up. Pirates of the Caribbean line, right? Part of the crew, part of the ship. So pivoting into to a more macro approach, really super macro approach, but delivered in a way that was very easily digestible. Vance Serchuk from KKR Global Institute, where we'll talk about sort of the future of geopolitics and national security. Just a knowledge bomb of an episode. I mean, it's a, if you have somehow not listened to this, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to it. His ability to, to not only talk about, you know, in totality, the complexity that we're, we're seeing in a geopolitical level right now, but to highlight the nuances in there and the sort of um, connectivity, interrelatedness, whatever the right word is, is pretty astounding. And then from the Vance sort of talking about, you know, geopolitics at a macro with all the nuances, taking that down into people-centered data practice, Dr. David Bray, one of the smartest people I know, period, got to really push into, with this growing sort of the rise of data and the power of data and sort of all the, the different buzzwords, we're able to click into the adversarial side of it or maybe the, the nefarious, malicious side of it and think about misinformation and disinformation and trust and what is real and what complexities does that create for policymakers and regulators and security teams and consumers. And it was just an unreal conversation and a great way, I think, to, to kind of pull that last thread together. For folks who don't know, 1959, launch a rocket that would take photos of the Soviet Union, so before Apollo and everything like that, uh, and then it would parachute a film canister that would be picked up by a helicopter or a plane before it landed in the ocean. The first 13 rockets blew up. It wasn't until rocket attempt number 21 they finally succeeded. And of course, it helped win the Cold War, but it was later declassified in the mid-90s, bought by a company called Keyhole that was bought by Google to become the basis of Google Earth. So I often say, you know, government is innovative. They just don't monetize it. They leave it to others. And so as you see sort of everything we were able to go through, fortunate to go through these different themes in season two, all feed into these two large events that that Second Front will be hosting, you know, later this year. You know, on March 11th down at South by Southwest as, as we go through everything from operational realities to technical challenges to the Defense Innovation Board and in, in between, and then into Offset Symposium, where we'll be having conversations all the way up at sort of the legislative and regulatory side of the house. And then again, all the way down to, to that sort of tactical you know, combatant commander and below level. Um, so I would encourage you get in touch. If you have questions about any of these events, we would love to see folks there. And then as always, if there are ideas for, for conversations, for topics, for people or for organizations that should be heard and should be elevated, drop comments in, send feedback in and, uh, 
we'll get them on the pod. Thanks, gang. Thanks for listening. Wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about Second Front and what we're up to. Stay weird. Stay weird.